You know, there have been uh, times in my life in which I felt like things were not okay. But the problem was, is that I didn't feel like I could tell anyone. I didn't think anyone would understand. I didn't think anyone would listen. I didn't think anyone would empathize with me. One of those times in my life uh, took place when I started my master's program at Anderson School of Theology. I kind of thought that doing my master's would be very similar to college. And college for me was basically party on the weekends, play a lot of basketball during the week, and then cram for tests. And I made it through, and it was okay. And then when I started my master's program, I remember they gave us this gigantic syllabus on day one, and I realized I could not use that same strategy for my master's. And uh, I was totally kind of clueless on exactly what, uh, you know, I would even be doing because I, I hadn't been in school for six years. And uh, I had been totally disconnected from academic world. And so I wasn't really sure how to take notes. All the professors, when they spoke, uh, their words went right over my head because I was not very smart. And I actually realized that in those six years, I got dumber. Have you ever experienced that before? Like you're, you think you're pretty smart, and then all of a sudden you do something different in your life, and you realize, you know what? You're dumb. That's what you are. And so basically that was me, and now I'm in seminary trying to make this work. And uh, after the first month, I was taking 13 credit hours, and it was about 50 hours a week that I was studying. And I just couldn't handle it anymore, and I actually had to drop two of the classes. And I was a failure. Nobody else was dropping classes. I did. And so I felt totally inadequate. And I started getting mad at God. Because God was the one that had called me to this master's degree, and he's left me high and dry. He was not helping me at all. And I was like drowning in this sea of academia. I was not okay, but I just didn't feel like I could tell anyone because no one would understand, no one would hear. Seminary just didn't feel like a place that it was okay to not be okay. Have you ever experienced that before in your own life? Maybe it's with your family. Maybe it's with the place where you work, where you walk into an environment and actually they don't want to hear your story. They just want to hear you say, fine. Everything's fine. But it's rare that you can come to a place where it's okay to not be okay. And sometimes the reality is, even in the church, we struggle to be able to create an environment where it's okay to not be okay. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at these three particular questions and trying to answer them. Here's the first one. How do I hang on to God when it's not okay? How do we do that? When life isn't okay, how do we hang on to God? Secondly, how do I love other people when it's not okay? And then finally, how do I keep going when it's not okay? Today, uh, after the first celebration, a woman walked out across the parking lot and she came up and she immediately started weeping and said, my husband died Friday. 
Folks, what do you do with that? How do you deal with life when it's not okay? Well, God must have known that you and I uh, actually uh, would deal with this in our life. And so there's a story in the Bible. It's the oldest story uh, actually in the Bible outside of Adam and Eve. And it's the story of Job. Uh, Job is a guy in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, and he lived a life where it was not always okay. And his story begins this way. It says this, In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. Now, I know a lot of you want to say job, okay? I did that for the first sermon I ever taught on this. And someone finally told me, that's not his name. So uh, don't go ahead and get caught up in that, okay? His name's Joe. And this man was what? What was he? And what else? In other words, he was a man of integrity. Like he honored God. He was not allowing any evil to kind of distract him. And then the scripture goes on to say, he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So everything East, he was the greatest man there was. And his story begins and we're like, oh, this sounds like such a great story. Everything's going fine. He's being blessed. The trouble is, is that in the land of us, sometimes, sometimes, Unexpected things happen. Sometimes, bad things happen to really good people. Us is a place where suffering comes and where it comes without warning and many times without explanation. And God is not there. Us is the land that is not okay. Folks, every single human being in this world and every person in this auditorium is going to spend some time in the land of us. And maybe for some of you, like that woman today who lost her husband on Friday, maybe some of you are going through some suffering and hurt and struggle in your life. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a recent divorce. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's some kind of depression or anxiety or fear that you're dealing with. But the reality is you're there right now. So often, it's beneath the surface, but we cry out and we say, God, it's not okay but there's no one around me to be able to say, it's okay to not be okay. And that's the land of us. So for the rest of our time, what I want you to do is I want you to imagine that we're kind of involved in two different stages. Two different kind of dramatic stages since we're on a stage today. The first stage is what I'm standing on and everyone that is in the downstairs. So everyone that is on the stage, me, and everyone downstairs. And where we are is in the first stage, which is earth. You are all earthlings, okay? And I think uh, we actually have someone, there it is, who has a sign. Where are you from, earthlings? You're from earth. Okay, you are earth. Okay. Now, uh, we have another stage in this story, and uh, the stage is actually up in the balcony. They were trying to fix this for me, but it doesn't seem like it worked. Right, maybe that's better. 
Uh, and so we have a second stage in this story, and it's up in the balcony, and you guys are in heaven. Okay? Now, some of you might even think you're angels. You're going to only be angels for 30 minutes, but you're angels, okay? And uh, so you're in the heavenly realm, and I think we have a person up there that has a sign that says heaven. So you see where you're at. So no cussing upstairs right now, okay? So there are these two stages in Job's life. Job and all of the characters are actually down here on planet Earth. We don't know what's going up uh, in heaven. But every time, once in a while at, on Earth, uh, when there is um, you know, an actual uh, kind of celebration, we cheer or we yell, okay? So all of you Earth people, I'd like you to give your best yell right now. One, two, three. Good, 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 good. Okay, and there's other things that are going on up in heaven and uh, we'd like all you heavenly people to kind of give your best kind of yell. So one, two, three, heaven people. Okay, that was good. That was good. Um, you're still not angels, but you can yell loud. Okay. So Job and all these characters are not able to see what's going on up in heaven. Well, this is what takes place in heaven with Job's story. One day, Satan comes to God, and Satan says, the only reason why people worship you or follow you is because you bless their life. If you choose not to bless their life, they will not follow you anymore. And uh, God says, well, I don't think that's true. And he said, well, what about your guy named Job? I bet if you took the blessings away from him, that... He would no longer follow you. And so Satan creates a lot of suffering for Job. In a matter of a few days, he went from everything important of his life being good to where all of it was taken away. Poachers came in and took all of his cattle. A storm came and wiped out all of his sheep. A ten-force wind came in and destroyed the house where all of his family and all of his kids were at, and all ten of them died. And so now we come to the story and we wonder, how is Job going to respond? And we're told that he grieves, but then he worships, and he gives praise to God. And it's amazing to think that, but he never sinned. And this happens all on the lower stage where we're at down here on earth. But then the story switches again back to the upper stage where those of you are in heaven. Satan is not happy with the fact that Job is still following God. And so he says, well, I'll tell you what, a human being would do anything to save their own life. So if you do something to his health, if I do something to his health, if we do something that affects his health, he won't follow you. He'll curse your face. Now, when I first read this story for the first time, I didn't really get it. I was kind of like, you know, why is God doing this? It seems cruel to me, this contest 
to kind of go on. It didn't, it didn't fit well. I mean, it seems very strange to me that all of you in heaven are there, but all of us who are down here on earth, we don't even know what's going on up there. And for the longest time, I thought the key question to this book on Job was this question right here, where is God in the midst of suffering? And that's a good question to ask. Where is God in the midst of our suffering? But that's really not the key question. As I studied it more, the key question actually comes in chapter 1, verse 9, and here's the question. Does Job fear God for nothing? Does he have reverence for God for nothing? In other words, the idea that Satan is proposing that if you were to take blessings away from him, he wouldn't worship him, worship you because it's all about self-interest. Uh, Satan kind of tells God in a certain way, Job loves you like the cookie monster loves the cookie jar. But if you take away his blessing, if you turn off the faucet of blessing, he will turn off his faucet of devotion for you. The reality is, everybody is looking out for number one God down here on the first stage. This is, there is no such thing as self-giving love. And God kind of turns back to Satan up in the second stage and he says, you're wrong. God says you're wrong. His view, your view, Satan, is cynical. It's misguided. It's wrong. At the core of the universe, God says, is a self-giving, self-sacrificial kind of love. And this kind of leads us to our big idea this morning, which is your first fill-in, either in your program or you can do it on our JAR app. Just go to the app store and you can pull it down. And it's this. Hope in a loving God is infinitely bigger than the pain of suffering. Hope in a loving God is infinitely bigger than the pain of suffering. Well, Job's going to find this out. Because now the second wave of suffering kind of comes. Not only are all of his livestock and his family taken away, but now all of a sudden Satan comes and he gives him a skin disease. A disease that's so bad that he breaks off pieces of pottery clay and he starts to scrape it off of his arms and to scrape it off of his legs. He's in absolute emotional and physical agony. But luckily, Job is not alone. He has a wife. And this wife comes and gives this encouraging word, Curse God and die! Woo! What an encourager! What a bubbly personality! Well, just go ahead and curse God and die! Just the kind of woman that you want around you when bad things are happening. Right? Someone who will just look to you and go, yep, pretty much stinks. Curse God and die! Well, luckily, Job did not just have his wife, but he had some other friends that were there too. And Job said, you know what? I can't talk to them yet, but I'm going to think about this whole thing differently. He said, my wife said, curse God and die, but this is what Job said. Job said these words. 
Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gave me everything that I had when things were going really, really well. And now that those things aren't there, it doesn't mean that he's any less than who he was. I still am going to bless him. Now, Job is not making light of his losses here. He's dealing with a lot of difficult things. But he was like, yes, this terrible, terrible storm has hit my life. It's overwhelming. I can't believe it. But I still think that God is the anchor for my soul. And he's been there for me before. And I will not walk away now. Now, luckily for Job, like I said earlier, he didn't just have his wife, but he had some friends as well. And his friends see his horrible situation, and this is what the text says. When they, Job's friends, saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Thank you! Like, just think about it for a second. You know, usually when somebody is feeling bad, they want someone to cheer them up. For someone to say, well, it's not so bad, or you're going to get through this, or you look a lot better than you actually do. But how many of you have ever been sick before, and people come to visit you, and they look at you, and they go, (laughs) you look horrible. And then they start tearing their clothes. Like, How is that encouraging to anybody? Well, that's going on. And the story goes on and it says this, Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Just imagine sitting with someone for seven days and seven nights and you never say a word. You know, it's such a a powerful act to just sit with someone when they're suffering. It became so powerful, actually, that the Jewish faith took this passage and they created kind of a tradition and they called it sitting in Shiva. And they still practice it, actually, today, that when a person is mourning some kind of loss, someone will actually come, friends will come, and they'll sit with you for seven days and seven nights. And I was thinking that maybe that's what Paul actually kind of meant when in the New Testament, in Romans 12, he said these words. He said, mourn with those who mourn. He didn't say fix people when they're mourning. He didn't say give advice to people when they're mourning. He didn't say, tell those that mourn they shouldn't mourn. He didn't say, did you do something wrong and that's why this is happening to your life. He doesn't say, tell them if you didn't have enough faith, maybe that's why it happened. Or if you had more faith, it wouldn't have happened. You just need to pray more. You need to read your Bible more. The kind of stupid things that you and I are, have a tendency to say to people when they're mourning. And so when this lady walked out, thank God I was teaching on this this week, she came and she just wanted a hug and she started shaking. And I didn't have to say anything. I was just there for 
And quite honestly, I didn't care about all the other people that were passing by. Or people that were like, hey, how are you? Or one person forgot to get the sign in the first celebration of heaven. And they're like, hey, by the way. I'm like, they had no clue. Because sometimes, folks, you simply need to be with where people are at. Now, these guys did a really good job for the first seven days. But then after seven days, guess what they did? They opened their mouth. And they inserted their foot. They started to talk and they screwed it up. Folks, one of the reasons why we have small groups here at the JAR is so that when you're going through life and it's a difficult time, that you don't go through it by yourself. That you can be a part of a group that people aren't going to fix you. Our groups aren't fixed groups. They're not advice groups. They're not to tell you what you should do or shouldn't do. They don't tell you here are three things you can do for a level of happiness. It's simply a group that meets with you and whatever you're going through, you don't have to go through it alone. And they'll sit with you. They'll bring you a meal. They'll take care of you. We have a lady in our small group right now who's battling cancer and is struggling with it. And so uh, the group is coming together to provide meals for them. Why would you want to not be a part of something that when your life is rocked, that you don't have some people around you who are going to encourage you and build you up? And so I would encourage you not to do that. Don't go through it anymore. Try a group. And the way you can do that is simply by going to our Connect card. On the back side of it says to receive more information on small groups. It doesn't mean that you have to commit to it. It just says, hey, I'm interested. And you can check that card or go back uh, here to the far left corner on the main level, and you can talk with someone at the small group's table. Our groups don't meet every week. They only meet two times a month. But I'm telling you, I'm in one. I love it, and I can't imagine doing life without those people. And they've been there for me, and I've been there for them. So back to our story. So these guys do the right thing. They, they listen for seven days, but then they open their mouths and... Things don't work out as well. And so finally, Job says, well, I'll open my mouth too. And this is what we read in chapter 3. It says, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. Have you ever had so much suffering in your life sometimes where you just felt like, I just wish I wouldn't have been born? I bet there's more of us here than could imagine that have felt that before and when Job says that we realize well man that same guy that said uh you know blessed be the name of the Lord he's kind of upset now and at first you think oh this isn't a bad book it's going to be a quick read three chapters but then when he says that you know that things are going to turn the corner and for the next 28 chapters he pours out a bitterness and confusion and sorrow and doubt and anger toward God that is truly staggering. Listen to some of the things that he says. He says this, For the Almighty has struck, struck me down with His arrows. Their poison infects my spirit. God, you're trying to take me out, aren't you? God's terrors are lined up against me. Let me ask you, have you ever heard someone say this phrase before? Wow, you know what? They have the patience of Job. Anyone ever hear that before? That's dumb. Because that's not what he does. He doesn't have any patience at all. 
In fact, if anyone ever says that, oh, they have the patience of Job, you should ask them, have you ever read it before? Because I think most people never have, and they don't realize. He didn't have patience. He was constantly asking, how long is this going to happen, God? Why me? Make it stop. Where are you? What's going on? You know, sometimes people will tell us or we're told, you know what, just trust in God, trust in God. But not Job. Job was like, are you serious? This is happening to me. Job accuses God. He blames God. He challenges God. He attacks God. He confronts God. And listen to this. Job is not a non-believer. He's not a skeptic. He is a believer in the God of the universe. He does this in such an honest, direct way that his three friends actually kind of get scared. And they're like, I don't think you should be saying that about God. You need to stop saying what you're saying, Job. You see, his friends were trying to tell him basically the thought of the day, which was this, that if you're receiving blessings in your life, it's because you're doing good things, and if you're, doing, if you're getting suffering in your life, it's because you're doing bad things. Folks, the idea, if it's blessed, it's because I'm good, and if I'm suffering, it's because I've been bad, is wrong. It's stinking thinking. It is not Bible thinking. And Job says this. He goes on to say, if only I knew where to find him, that is God, if only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. He's like, I can defend myself on what you have been doing to me. Folks, you know as well as myself that nobody can see the great and powerful God of the universe. And yet when we're suffering, people will tell us, well, just trust God, just trust God, just trust God, just trust God. But Job doesn't do that. He actually challenges God. And you know, I've been thinking, that maybe what God wants from us more than just a simple, hey, I trust you, is that we would be honest to the gut level where we're at to even challenge him because maybe it's when we have our challenges that we trust God the most. Just maybe. Job says this, I wish I could take God to court. If I could take him to court, man to man, I would show him what's up. Well, in chapter 38, he finally gets his wish. And it says this, then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Now, how do you guys think that conversation went? I mean, here's big, bad Job. And then God shows up. And look what God says. God says, okay, Job, who are you to question my wisdom with your ignorant, empty words? Now stand up straight and answer the questions I ask you. You want to defend yourself? Let's go for it. Were you there when I made the world? If you know so much, tell me about it. Who decided how large it would be? Who stretched the measuring line over it? Do you know all the answers? What holds up the pillars that support the earth? Who laid the cornerstone of the world? And all of a sudden you see Job going, oh. Here, God asked Job all of these questions, and my question is, why does God do this? 
You know, for the longest time when I would read this story, I'm like, God's a meanie. Like, God's a big, big meanie. I mean, it seemed like he was picking on this poor little guy. And of course, you know, it's not fair because Job is dumber than God. We're all dumber than God. Now, part of what's happening is God is uh, being able to explain to Job that you have an, a finite mind and you have a limited point of view. You don't live up here on the second stage up in heaven. You are down here on earth. And folks, that's true for all of us. We're all limited that way. But I think what God's trying to do is something even more important than this. I've never seen it in Scripture before. You see, all of these questions for God are simply leading to describe who He really is. Look at what God says next. God says, Job, who created a channel for the torrents of rain? Who laid out the path for the lightning? Who makes the rain fall on barren land in a desert where no one lives? Who sends rain to satisfy the parched ground and make the tender grass spring up. What we don't understand when we read this, if you make it that far in Job, because most people stop reading, but if you make it all the way to chapter 38, you just read through that and you don't think about it very much. But if you understand the culture at the time, folks, in Israel at that time, rainfall meant life. People in Israel didn't like start brushing their teeth and just leave the faucet on like some of you do. Rainwater was life. They, they, it was the most precious commodity that they could keep was water that was around them. Now what's so interesting about this particular text is why in the world is the God of the universe watering barren land in a desert where no one lives. Why would he do that? I mean, it seems odd. It seems strange. Do you know why God does that? Because God is a God of continual goodness. He gives good things everywhere. Good, good. That's the only thing he knows how to do. And he's like, oh, I love to to do this. I love to make this. I love to pour rain in places where no one would ever expect it to rain because I'm just foolishly, irrationally loving to all my creation. You know, the land of us sounds very similar to a musical called The Wizard of what? Of Oz. You know the little story, there's Dorothy, this little girl, and then there are these three characters, the lion, the scarecrow, and the tin man. And they're all trying to get to who? The wizard. But the wizard, they can't find him because where is he at? He's behind the curtain. Folks, the God of the universe does not sit behind a curtain trying to mess up your life. The God of the universe is present and with you and for you and He loves you and He does irrational things like pouring rain in desert places because of His goodness. He is irrationally loving, 
outrageously generous, and He is always, always good to you. You know, throughout the story of Job, he never finds out about the conversation up on the second stage, up in heaven. And it's because, it wasn't because he didn't, he was left out of it. Rather, Job never finds out about it because his story is our story. In this life, in this not okay earth that you and I live in, you and I live down in the lower stage, and we don't get to know what is happening up in heaven. We don't get to see. We don't get to hear. But Job finds out something that is much better than actually knowing what's going up there. He finds out who God is. That God is irrationally loving. That He's outrageously generous. And that He is constantly good to us no matter what, and He never abandons us in our suffering. In fact, this is what Job finally says. Job said to God, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And Job says that's enough. The goodness of God and the reality of His presence are enough. I don't have to know everything that's going on in the upper stage. I just need to know there's a God who says, it's okay not to be okay. And you know what? I'm with you. I'm for you. I will not walk away. I will not abandon you in your suffering. And God doesn't. And at the end of the book, this is what we read. The Lord blessed the last part of Job's life even more than he had blessed the first. He does a really, really cool thing. He actually gives him more children Ten more children. And then a whole bunch of grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And you can you just imagine like the family get-togethers like some of you experienced on Easter? Can you imagine this group of people around and there's Job and he's like, hey guys, gather. I want you to gather around me. First of all, I want to tell you about a time in my life when a storm came. I mean, I lost all my cattle, all my sheep, and my ten kids that I loved. They all were taken away but I held to an anchor to the God of the universe and He did not let me down. And He gave me all of you. And you're here because of His great love for me. You know, last weekend we celebrated the life and the death and the resurrection of the one and only Jesus Christ. And ironically, it was kind of interesting that when Jesus came to earth, he kind of sounded like God to Job. He was irrationally loving. He was outrageously generous. And he was always good. And he sounds like him so much when he says these words. Jesus said, look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their own clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not as dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for the wildflowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Folks, why are the lilies of the field so beautiful? Because there is a father 
who loves lilies. And he's like, I'm going to make them beautiful. I'm going to make them grow. I'm going to make them wonderful. He does it cheerily out of his goodness for you and I so we can enjoy them. It was because of his irrational love that he sent his one and only son to a cross in a not okay world and he died a criminal's death and we celebrated remembering it today with the bread and the cup. And when Jesus died on the cross, they had this kind of uh, battle that was going on in the upper stage, in the second stage in heaven up there in the balcony. And the battle was, Satan was like, I finally won! He's dead! He's done! And then three days later, he comes out of the tomb and he's conquered death and he destroyed Satan's power and no longer was Satan able to do any control over humankind. You know, Job could not see the upper stage. Job did not know that his faithfulness and his willingness to honor God would have impact on you and I sitting here today on April 28, 2019. Job's faithfulness, even in his suffering, his honesty and his perseverance, thousands and thousands of years ago, that story took place, but it's impacted billions and billions of people in the land of us. And today, Jesus says to you and to me these words. He says, hang on! Keep going! Don't let go! Don't give up! God is so close! God is so good! And folks, we live in the land of us. We live with anxiety and fear and failure and divorce and relational breakdowns and, con- and hurts and confusion. And this is what we're going to be talking about over the next five weeks. And why do we live here? I don't know. How long are we going to have to deal with these things? I don't know. Does your response matter more than you could possibly imagine? So remember this week, keeping hope in a loving God is infinitely better than the pain of suffering. And I pray this week, that you would hang on, that you would keep going, that you don't let go, that you don't give up, that God is very close and God is good. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for reminding us today that it's okay not to be okay. Thank you for being with us in this not okay world. A world where there's suffering and hurt and pain. Thank you for reminding us that our only hope could be and is in you. A loving God who is infinitely bigger than the pain 
and suffering. Thank you so much, God, for the story of Job that reminds us his story is our story too. And today, maybe some of you are sitting there and you don't think anyone will listen or understand. But you're experiencing right now some kind of fear or hurt or relational breakup in your life. And you realize, you know what, I'm not okay. If there's something in your life, anything in your life that is not okay now, would you just raise your hand? Would you just, in a moment of honesty, no one's going to see you, we've got the lights down, but something in your life just not going on, would you just raise your hand? Hands up. Thanks for being honest. You can put your hand down. God, I pray right now for each person that raised their hand. Whatever is not okay in their life right now, God, would you remind them it's okay not to be okay. That you are the God of the universe and you don't think any less of them. You don't love them any less. You're not disappointed in them. You're not upset. You're not angry with them. Remind them right now that whatever they're facing, you are cheering them on. And you're saying, hang on. Keep going. Don't let go. Don't give up. I'm so close. I'm good. I'm here with you. Don't walk away from me. Now maybe for some of you today is your day. You're tired of living alone in the land of us. And you want that irrational love and that outrageous generosity and kind of that continued goodness of God. Today you're like, I'm tired of going down this dead-end road. I'm ready to be able to see the one who knows me most, uh, who, who knows me most and loves me most. And so I pray right now, God, that of those individuals who are here today, that if there's anyone who's ready to say, I'm ready to give my life. I need your forgiveness. I need your love. I need your presence. I'm ready to turn away from the sin that I know and to turn to you. If that's you today, I invite you to simply share this prayer after me. In fact, it's a prayer that you don't pray alone, but we pray together as one. And you can simply repeat after me. Just repeat after me. Jesus, thank you for loving me. No matter what. I give my life completely to you. Jesus, save me from my sins. Make me brand new. Touch my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so I could know you, serve you, and follow you for the rest of my life. My life is not my own. Today I give it to you. Thank you for new life. Now you have mine. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.